We try, ladies. We try, okay? I try to reduce my stupidity to five minutes a day. And so give your husband a break. We work really hard at it. We are just prone to idiocy. So, so anyway, communication is important. And, uh, and so thank you for sharing those things. Um, I have had 23 people ask me about my wife and is she here and how is she? Um, and they say nothing about the preaching, so I'm getting incredibly insecure about this and <laughs> told Tammy that last night late. Like, people are asking about you, honey. I think they're worried about, are we okay? And, you know, maritally, are we all okay? So, so let me show you a couple of quick pictures here. Did you have the other ones, Noah? I don't know. That, oh, there you go. So this is Tammy and I about three or four weeks ago. We had four of our 15 grandchildren. They loaded in a van, drove out to Utah, preached at a teen camp, and then went up to Cody, Wyoming, and Mount Rushmore, and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and then in the midst of that, I think we went to the zoo also. So that's my wife and I. We have four grown children, all married, all have kids. Um, Hawaii, oh, you do have that. Kevin and Misty are in Hawaii. Megan and Joaquin are, they're, they're at a revitalization program. They are going down to Atlanta to plant a Spanish church in Atlanta, actually in the next couple days. And then I have one boy at a Christian camp down in Carolina. And then my other son and two beautiful girls just moved down to um, Florida and do a new job. And he's in the Active Guard Reserve. So that's my little story. This was just a couple of days ago. So Tammy planned to be here, but she has walking pneumonia, and she has arthritis, and then it got worse, and so she's like, oh, I don't, I said, well, let me go preach, and maybe you can come on Wednesday, and so we'll see how that flies. So anyway, we just had a little get-together a few days ago, and that's about half the family. So, so uh, if you hear herons go into therapy, that means there's 15 sessions, and that's my grandkids. That's about one an hour, so that's our therapy to us, and we love them. So have you ever seen this? If you see a yacht at sea, you're in desperate need of a vacation. It's actually a hole in a leather sofa. <laughs> How many of you saw the yacht? You're here. It's a good spot for you. This is your, you're in the right place. And uh, so, uh, anyway, that's, uh, that has nothing to do with the message, but I just thought you needed a little... I could turn it into the message, I guess. So, uh, so I, I started yesterday with Obadiah. And so I want to continue on towards these God tweets to his followers, answers five questions we have been asked for millennia. These aren't the only five questions people ask, but I do find that on occasion these questions are being asked. One of them yesterday we tried to answer in the idea that Obadiah and the place that he was at if we could click this up here, uh, what in the world is going on? And God knew what was going on in his great sovereignty. Uh, he had taken two brothers in a split relationship and knew that that was all going to be used eventually for his ultimate plan and purpose, and it still is today. If you want to know what's going on in the world today, keep your eye, not on America, keep your eye on the Middle East, and particularly Israel, because this is God's chosen nation, still is, and a special place for that nation. And I think in addition to that, he grafted us, the church, into um, his promise. And I'm thankful for that, and we get to be a part of all that. Today, I want to talk about the other one of five, and the other four, all in the New Testament. And that is, 
Philemon. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. And I want to talk a little bit about how do you deal with your past failures and man's responsibility and what we're supposed to do. I think there's a lot of reasons why this is in the Bible, uh, but I want to take a look at one of this. So, so who wrote the most of the New Testament? It's kind of a trick question, actually, but I like answering it. There you go. Luke, thank you. Um, Luke, Luke wrote most content between Luke and the book of Acts, just pure content. But as far as what we would consider books of the Bible, Paul did, so you're right, 13, uh, nine of them, am I guessing this right here, nine are really more corporate, written to churches, and then there are four that he wrote to individuals. They all were inscripturated, uh, two to Timothy, Titus, and then the book you have in your hand, Philemon. So Philemon, you also could connect with Colossae, okay? Uh, because Paul had never been to Colossae. He was at Ephesus, about 100 miles south, is this little burg called Colossae, a very popular town, a lot going on. And um, Paul had gotten to know a very wealthy guy named Philemon. And Philemon was a very godly businessman, um, had a lot of slaves. In that day, slaves themselves uh, were the commodity. Um, it would be, in many cases, slaves, and depends on what world level you want to talk about, um, that the Roman Empire was fueled by slavery. I'm not here to talk about slavery and all that is now ignited in our own conversations, our narratives today. That's not my point. But the point is, in that day, slavery uh, uh, was a big component to the whole Roman Empire. It was Roman Empire needed people to work because the Romans got lazier and lazier. And Rome had had a huge influence, of course, picking up from Alexander the Great. And so Rome became very dominant. They primarily fueled the need for people to run the Roman Empire as far as workforce by wars. And there was three primary wars. The last one was about 50 years before Jesus showed up on the scene called the Gaul Wars. Half a million people were gathered and brought into the Roman Empire, primarily in Rome. So Rome itself, huge discrepancies on numbers. I've heard everything from 5 million to 50 million people in the Roman Empire, from 5 to 15 million in Rome itself. 35% or so are, are um, slaves. So they, they were around all the time. They were just tools. Most of them were tools. Depends on what level you want to deal with. The more educated you are, the more valuable you are, and you were treated pretty well. The highest level, if you were a girl and you were in slavery, would be the, the, the lady's um, caretaker or, or um, personal assistant. So all the way down to uh, people doing menial work, but they were needed. If you were a wealthy person, you could have upwards of 400 to 1,000 slaves. Most of the Romans didn't really have slaves, and a few of them did, and then kind of all in between there. So either there was infusion into Rome with most of them were Greeks, because that was a constant battle between the Greeks and Romans, or the Gauls that came down, Europeans. Or you were criminal, you were put into slavery, or you were financially like... 
You have no other option. You sold yourself into slavery or you were born into slavery. So I give this to a backdrop to understand that when Paul now is on his, been through his missionary journeys, one guy came up from Colossae, heard the gospel, got saved, and came back to Colossae was where he's from. Somehow Philemon had met Paul. We don't really know how or what, but there was a friendship. And so in the middle of all of this, the story is that there was another guy named Onesimus that worked for Philemon. We have no idea of his backdrop other than his name Onesimus meant um, useful. And so saying that, in this letter, Paul sends a compassionate plea to Philemon, a slave owner in Colossae. Paul's letter from Rome asks him to treat Onesimus not as a runaway slave, but as a loved brother in Christ. Because Onesimus gets up to Rome, we have no idea how he got connected. It might have been that he um, had heard about Paul, potentially, and, and tracked him down. Uh, probably living hand to mouth. Who knows how much money he took from his owner, Philemon. But this is like a criminal offense. This is like you can get killed for these kind of things. Somehow he, he runs into Paul, whether by intent or not, and he comes to Christ. And so Paul tells Onesimus, Onesimus, you have to deal with your past. And you can't stay here. I'd love for you to stay here. You're a blessing to my heart. You, you need to go back and clear things up with Philemon. You need restoration. So this whole letter is a very personal letter to a, a businessman, wealthy businessman, and, and telling Philemon and asking him to take back Onesimus. And in the bigger scope of this, it's a reminder how do we help restore people? And what's important in a restoration process? How are you an advocate for those that need advocacy? And so this is a, a very important letter. It's a very private letter, personal letter, but it became very public because it's like you go ahead and, and, and explain this. So I think there's three major divisions. Here's what I want to do. I want to read it with you. It doesn't take but a few minutes. And then um, let me give you a three-fold breakdown. And then in your notes here on page 10, I just kind of draw some applications I would call take-home true. So if you got that, look at Philemon, if you would. And uh, let me read it from the ESV and then make comments. I, I, I teach and preach at the King James. I just I grew up with it, and so that's kind of the Bible I use. But... Um, but I think this is a, a good explanation. So let's just read through it and make these points and then make application. Here you go. Verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, Aphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. And these are all leadership there in Colossae. And typically, as Paul would say, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Great theology. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and the faith 
that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I'm, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I'm appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment, spiritually speaking. Formerly, he says in parentheses, he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. He's kind of playing off of Onesimus' name. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my, my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted for you for a while, that you might have him back forever. A very providential view of events, typically as Pauline would epistles would, would give it to us. Verse 16, no longer as he's a bondservant now, but more than a bondservant, he's a brother, a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more now to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, then you receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, then charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, and I'll repay it. Say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. You refresh my heart in Christ. Then he closes, confident of your obedience, I'm going to write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. And his final greetings, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greetings. He was the guy that came up from Colossae and brought, and so do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke. These are all my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so th this is just, again, a, a uh, what is it, 335 words in the original Greek. It's a very condensed version, but here's Paul, the known terrorist to now the known apostle, and he is talking about that restitution is better than revenge. We talked about yesterday. There was always revenge going on between two brothers, and here is Paul now, the brother, saying to Philemon, a wealthy guy, and listen, I'm appealing to you on behalf of somebody else. What did he do and how did he say it? These are the breakdown. Number one, you find it actually when he uses a term in verse 4, I thank my God. This is this heartfelt Paul's appreciation and support of Philemon. This is how he uses this phrasing, I thank my God. There's this genuine sense of appreciation for relationship that Paul has, and, and, and it's, it's warming. It's like, 
This is the best way to communicate and start with the positive. Start with the uh, Philemon. Listen, you have a reputation. I'm thanking God. You, I'm, every time I think about you, I think about you in my prayers. That communication, do you see that in verse 6? Of the faith may become effectual. That same term, communication, is the same term, actually, that verse 17, another word, partner, the koinonia. We had this, this relationship, which we get the idea of the right hand of fellowship. He said, we're tight, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of leveraging this now to be able to ask you something, and I want to ask you that in the midst of this relationship, this I'm thanking God, that he mentions number two, not just the appreciation, but number two, he says, this is the request. And with this request, this is this heartfelt appeal and reasoning uh, to Onesimus that, listen, this is what's needed. So pull up number two, Noah, that now he toggles to really the reason for why he's writing this letter. He's appealing to Onesimus to say, listen, I know he left you, and, and for love's sake, do this. You should do this for your sake. You should do this for my sake. You should do this for Onesimus' sake. Everybody's going to be a winner in this. And there's some powerful statements. That's why he said, verse 8, or verse 9, I'm enjoining you, verse 8, and number 9, yet for love's sake, I'd rather beseech you. I'm like begging you, and he's leveraging the, I'm like Paul the aged guy, and I'm leaning on you that, listen, would you do what is right? And if you do what is right then everybody's going to win in this. And this is the idea in which in verse 14, but he says, without thy mind would I do nothing. I wasn't going to, I could potentially hang on to him and do this just by virtue of my, he didn't use apostleship, but everybody knew Paul now, and he'd been at it now. We're talking from when Paul turned to Christ to this correspondence. You're talking like 25 to 30 years so there's this willingness to say, hey, I, I know that you need to do this. And, and I don't want to like put you in the corner to do this, but in essence, that's kind of what Paul was doing. But he had enough relationship in order to do this. Now, I say this because um, often is the case where, where we might see somebody come to Christ and end their growing uh, um, it's kind of obvious when you look at this and you step back, what Paul was doing was, listen, Onesimus had, had confessed his sin to God, came to Christ. And really what he had been saying to Onesimus is, as you look at the corpus of Paul's teaching, he was saying, Onesimus, you need to clear your conscience, which is mean you're going to have to go back and clear this up. So with this clearing of your conscience, you also need to give restitution. So, so actually, out of the 23 times, as I'm thinking about it, out of the 23 times conscience is mentioned in the New Testament, conscience with science, with knowledge, Paul uses it more than anybody. This is why a few years into Paul now ministering on his missionary trips, he said, I have a conscience void of offense towards God and man. Like, I have this right relationship and this right relationship. So when the conscience is clear, then you have this great freedom. 
And this, Philemon, is an appeal for Onesimus to allow Onesimus to clear his conscience. Paul was saying he still has to restore things, but that conscience is incredibly important. The first time I preached on Philemon was, was out in Guam, and, and uh, uh, so I worked as a pastor out there, and then Tammy was very involved with lots of other ministries. We had a, a foster care system that we coordinated with the government there, and a, what we called Harvest House, and missions agency of doing things through probably 30 missionaries out there in Micronesia. They had a little Bible college of 100 Micronesians and then um, and a radio station. And then we had an um, uh, academy from K3 to 12th grade. There was 1,000 kids. So that was kind of our primary outreach into the communities. We had to hire 150 full-time people that this is kind of where that all happened. And then I got tired and said, it's time to come back to Iowa and look at corn. And so um, I'm half joking about that. Uh, so w- one of those uh, guys that was our neighbor, Chris, and uh, married a Micronesian girl, and he's from Ireland and an Australian and a businessman. And then, and then uh, anyway, so he got saved and started coming to harvest, and, and kids were in the academy, and, and actually his wife started taking classes at the college there and this, all these Micronesians. They're all ESL. English was their primary language. And so, and Chris came to one time and he said, um, you know, Pastor, I, 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 I've called out the Lord, the name of the Lord, I got saved, I've been baptized, but uh, my dad is unsaved. And, and I keep thinking about him. I said, well, Chris, maybe you got saved in order to reach out to your dad. And so I encouraged him. I said, why don't you write him a letter? And, and, and maybe someday he's in Ireland. His dad's in Ireland. We're in Guam, uh, which is a long ways away. And, and so Chris started writing, his dad. And he, his dad was like super harsh and, and iconically critical of everything Chris did. That created enough issues in Chris. He's, he's in his mid-40s, early 50s. Very successful as an accountant for Deloitte & Touche. And, and has told me, you can tell, tell my story. Well, over about a year, he reaches his dad, and eventually his dad softens up, and Chris comes to me and says, I think I should fly over to Ireland and witness to my dad. I'm so burdened from him. He's not in good health. And I can clear my conscience with him. That's the term he used. He said, absolutely. You need to do that, Chris. And he did. A couple weeks later, he comes back. He says, you know, Pastor... Uh, God blessed. I was able to witness to my dad. My dad didn't come to Christ. I cleared my conscience with him. I asked him, you know, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And, and that softened his heart. And he said, you know, Chris, I want to tell you something that's been on my conscience a long time. Actually, you and your sister are not the only two in my family I never told you this, but I was married before. And I had four other kids before you ever came along. Chris is like, what? What? You can't be kidding me. So Chris comes back to Guam, and he's just like, so this whole, for him, the relationships all open back up because there's no hindrance. You know, like Adolf and Rudy that, you know, you move to the other side of the river, and there's like no communication. 
Somebody has to step forward. And, and that's what Chris did. Uh, a year later, Chris flew back, and they had a big family reunion, and met all of his other stepsisters and brothers, and their kids. And a few of them got saved. Because a businessman that said, this is important, and actually helped negotiate and advocated for a few of his other family that was so estranged with his own dad. So I'm trying to put it down the layer where all of us live. And I could honestly say hundreds of churches that we've been at. This is the core of where you see churches that either are struggling and difficulties and hiding and, and sweeping things over to the cover, cover or the corner or under the rug where... Or there are relationships that are at least out there. It doesn't mean that everything's perfect or that all of a sudden everything is amazing because it's not. But at least between God, there's a conscience clear and other people, it's clear. So Onesimus could say, I've not wronged, I've not hurt, I've not offended anyone that I haven't gone back to and made it right. And, and that's exactly what Paul was trying to say to Onesimus. And when you have that, so then you can find churches where sometimes you find churches, it's like they have it. Like they got it. In fact, there's a book called Written It. It's an amazing little story. Because what happens is people's lives becomes the advertising for a church. So I appreciate Pastor Mike last night that it's not just about the pastors. I think that's critically important, and he would be the first one to say that in the deacons and leadership. But the reality is you are the church. I mean, there's like eight hands that raise. Everybody else is like laymen, like you're the Philemon's. You go, no, no, the difference is he's got money and I don't. He has workforce and I don't. Okay, but you understand the point. So I'm saying to you, listen to me, this is so important. Because it's not just about, oh, well, okay, I got a conscience and I offloaded all my past onto somebody. It's not, that's not the point. The restoration of relationships, because Christianity is relationships. So when the relationships are right, then the church is healthy. And this is why Paul wrote to Philemon to say, listen, you're part of this leadership. And I know this to be true. Because the advertising for this is not just advertising on billboards. It's like the life. It's adorning the doctrine of Christ. That is more cosmetically, but the fact is it's saying the right thing. So that picture I took of the four kids in the back of the van, that was right after visiting Mount Rushmore. How many of you have been to Mount Rushmore? Okay, how many of you have not been? Okay, you need to go next summer after you do camp here, then go to Mount Rushmore. Three million people, I know, because I was there the day they had three million people. I think it's the whole, but I was there. It's like, you walk up, and it's an amazing sight, and, you know, sometimes I can get in a mode like, okay, we saw it, click, click, okay, let's roll. And like, no, you can't just like go roll. And so we went down, saw the museum, blah, 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 blah. And then we, we went home, went back to the hotel, Early in the morning, got up, and off we go back home, drive through South Dakota. Between Mount Rushmore and Ankeny, Iowa, there's a stop that in 1931, Ted and his wife started a drugstore. (laughs) 
Who knew? <laughs> I didn't know. Because I'm an hour or so outside of Park Rapids or Park City, whatever the place we were at. And I start seeing signs every mile. Wall drug. Another mile. Kids. Welcome. Boots. Fudge. Free water. Ice. 20 miles. It almost became a joke, like, what is this place? I never heard of Wall Drug. And guess who pulled off on Wall Drug? <laughs> I had to get gas. That was, okay, honey, you go, we'll go in there. The whole town is Wall Drug. How many of you have been to Wall Drug? I don't know what I'm talking about. I Googled it. You know how many people go to Wall Drug every year? Mount Rushmore, how many, how many visitors did I tell you? Three million. You know how many Wall Drug has? Two million. It's the second largest tourist trap in South Dakota. You know, I even bought something. It was so compelling. I was looking for Ted, Ted, where, and they have free water. So you got a little free water, and it's good, and I bought a butter knife. Actually, it's like a case, a case uh, knife, you know, like a case knife manufacturer. And uh, I told my wife, I'm getting this as a butter knife. And, uh, and I did, I did. I said, she said, that's like a pocket knife. I said, I know, but it's long, and it looks like for a butter knife, and I won't take it out of the kitchen. So, here's my point. Somebody figured out advertising. Somebody figured out how to tell others about wall drug. Ted figured out, I got to advertise. And you know what your church's advertising is? Your life. It's not 28,000 billboards on the highway. It probably doesn't hurt. But you're the billboard. You're the walking billboard. This is why Onesimus was sent back. He was the walking billboard. So when you see the idea, it give glory to God, the word glory among other definitions, one of them is to give a right opinion of God. So when you glorify God, you're giving a right opinion. You're a walking advertisement for God. This is how your church grows. This is how Chris made a huge difference in his family. It made a huge difference, actually, quite frankly, in our own little church. And this is why Paul, after his request and his reasoning, as we close, number three, is Paul's personal guarantee. This is how he said it in verse 19, when he made the statement, I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I will repay it. He's like, he needs to have restoration, but there also needs even restitution. If he owes something, he took money from you, I'll pay it back. If there's something that, that else needs to be taken care of, I'll take care of it. And at times, that's what has to happen. So you can clear your conscience, but if you stole a car, you got to pay back the car. If you kill somebody and you go into jail and you go into jail for life, you can get saved and you can clear your conscience, but it doesn't mean you get out of jail. You have debts to pay to society, and that might just be in jail the rest of your life. 
but there's a restitution. And sometimes that has to be a part of. And sometimes it's quite scary about making that decision, but you've got to be willing to do that. My older brother-in-law, uh, Canfield, travels with Revival Ministry, and I remember years ago, he said, I had a guy come to me in one of our meetings, and he, I, he said, I talked about a clear conscience. He said to me, you know what, I work at a factory, and over the years, actually a lot of people, and I was one of them, I started taking tools and pretty soon, I had a pretty good tool collection at home from work in the factory. And he said, you've been talking about, I've gotten right with God. My conscience is clear towards God. I want to get my conscience clear toward my boss. But if I do this, I'm going to lose my job. Been married, I've been working there for 16 years. Steve said, well, what's more important? Obedience to God or clear conscience towards, towards God? And so they prayed together, and the next week he went into boss and told him what happened. And he said, I've come to Christ, and he said, I, this might cost me my job. It doesn't matter to me. i got to get right with God, and I want to get right with you. And that boss said, you know, I could fire you. He said, but I'm so impressed at your willingness to come clean with me, because I know other things are happening, and I don't know who's doing it, but thank you for telling me. And if you're willing to come in every Saturday and go off the clock, but you keep your hours, and I'll put that towards you payback for those tools, which is what he did. A year and a half later, the boss called him in. He said, thank you for your restoration. You're about halfway there. But he said, I know your seriousness about this walk with your God and who you are. You're one of my best employees. And he, and he elevated him and, and took care of the rest of the debt. This is why it's so important. So here's your take-home truths in the last three minutes. Number one, understand that I would call, these are like components, these are kind of the big scope. The eternal truth is that the truth of Christ is what changes people. And secondly is there's this thing that I would call a sweet love because the love of Christ is what draws people. Paul, and, and I think it's good to understand that I think the idea is Ephesians 4.15 where speaking the truth in love and Jesus in John 1.14 and 17 that he was grace and truth and I think it's important to understand that the, the, the love of God is what draws people. The truth of God is what changes people. And so often in our churches, we think that, the, you know, we're, we're going to preach, which we need to preach, but the fact is, you are the love of Christ in your communities. That's what draws people. Like, there's something different about you. And then in that, now the truth of Christ is what changes them through your living, the preaching God's Word. So the result of that is the full obedience. And this full obedience of Christ, this is what I use the word protect people. Because when I look at what Paul said in Philemon, and then I look at the same writing and the same letter that went from Paul to the church, where Philemon was a part of the church membership, and then I read Colossians 3, and if you want to just put as a reference as we close, verse 12 and 13 and 14, this is now to the whole church where Paul is saying to the whole church, Philemon, Aphia, 
and Aristarchus, his son, all of part and are mentioned also in Colossae. Colossians 3.12, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, and a term that Paul loved that he coined, the humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, notice, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. Because if any man has a quarrel against anyone, even as Christ forgave you, you do. Do you not think that in a church they were aware of Philemon, maybe he had hundreds of slaves, but they knew that Onesimus went off. The letter of Philemon was eventually read, everybody knew, and here they see Philemon willing to do what Paul said to the whole church. You, you forbear, you forgive any man and are willing to do that. And when we hold back that forgiveness, we miss the opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. You see it in Joseph's life, in Genesis 50, 20. You brothers, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. What was he doing? Final statement. That as it was with Paul. In fact, as I, I, I wrote in my own notes, you, you can't change the past, but you can change the meaning. That's what Paul was doing. He wasn't changing the past. He was going to say, oh, Nisimus, you know, let's just forget about what he just did to you. And No, 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 no. He didn't change the past. He changed the meaning. And some of you, God has brought through your own life unbelievable circumstances that you say this should have never happened. This was so wrong. He should have never said that. They should have never did this. And that is true. And I'm not saying you need to change this past. You need to change the meaning. You put the cross of Christ over this. And now you see the truth of Christ that has changed you and the love of Christ that draws people to say, that doesn't have to control me. Christ could control me. And I could recognize this is a part now of my story, my narrative. And this is what makes all the difference. God, thank you for your word, truth of it. Help us to live by it. Thank you for these good people and help them as um, their family, their church. And how do we deal with past failures in those relationships make all the difference? Thank you for your Bible. It's so practical to help us in Jesus' name. Amen.